0: Hello, welcome to You Don't Know mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brand. And on this episode, slide on in with SST 151, the Scott Colby LP, Slide of Hand. First time we've had, and only time we'll have a Scott Colby LP, because it's his only one, and we've got a special guest, Brandt. Yeah, Scott Colby's on the show. The man himself. We've had music on the show with Scott on it before, but... As I said, this is his first, his only solo LP. We're also going to get into some Zoogs, some Zappa, and some Beefheart. So very much looking forward to that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, not only is this his only album on SST, it's his only album, period, in his career.
0: Yeah, but it's it's a good record. Like, it's a solid record. I'm pretty sure he's got a second full length in him. And you guys talk a bit about that in the uh, interview as well. So looking forward to getting into that. Yeah. Can I hit you with some spiel's first, Brent? Yes, please. Okay. So check it out. I have got at least two on the SS tree here for music, and maybe two more that are in the SST Arboretum. But we'll see if they pass your sniff test. Okay. Here the smell test.
1: We'll see if they're
0: if the bylaws allow it. Okay. So there is a new descendants single out Mm -hmm. suffrage to coincide with the election in the u.s um, it's pretty clear so two new tracks you can stream them now and there'll be a seven inch uh, physical copy eventually at some point which you'll be able to pick up from their king's road merch website always excited to get some new descendants some people out there have not been super positive about these tracks,
1: but I dig them. I totally dig them. Any new descendants is good descendants for me. I just hate it when people say shut up and get, stay out of politics to artists. I hate that. Especially punk artists.
0: Yes. Give me a break. All right, my second spiel is a Dream Syndicate update
1: for you, Brent. Oh, okay. Do you know about the artist Psychic Temple? Yes, I do. And I know about the spiel you're about to lay on me, but go ahead.
0: Yeah, so psychic temple otherwise known as chris schlarb he's got a few lps out he's got a recently new one out uh called houses of the holy it's a double lp there's a different band on each side one of the sides chris is backed up by dream syndicate he also is on a psychic temple lp recording project on the music for airports Brian Eno tribute with Mike Watt, which is excellent, by the way. And I've picked up everything by Psychic Temple or Chris Schlarb, and I've even picked up this one, and I quite like it. Have you heard it, Brandt? No, I haven't heard it yet. I thought you might be into it. You should check it out. Uh, I don't really know the Dream Syndicate as well as you do, but the side with Dream Syndicate is probably my favorite one. The other sides are by Cherry Glazer, the Chicago Underground Trio, and... Like a spoken word artist called, I'm going to mispronounce this too, Zolo Lan Zinzo hmm. something like that. There's a lot of X's in that name. So anyways, Dream Syndicate update for you,
1: Brent. Thanks. Yeah. I, it's on my to-do list to check that out for sure. Cool.
0: All right. A bit of a math rock update, not on the SS
1: tree, but I, I noticed
0: uh, this came out and I'm pumped and I thought others may be into it that label computer students records which put out the excellent new release by biggin knife of sin in the last few years has re-released the oxes self-titled uh, cd from 2000 they've re-released it it's called the fourth wall it's a double lp and it comes with the uh, the unreleased peel sessions on one of the sides and i think you would like oxes brant it's It's instrumental math rock, as they say, and there's a ton of different types of math rock, like from eight string guitar, ultra tapping math rock to just, you know, noisy different time signatures. These guys, I would say, are like a more of a Chicago-y, noise rocky sounding math rock um, with some good melodies and atmosphere, kind of a more chicago version of that canadian band weights and measures if you remember them Mm -hmm. so i check out oxes that's a recommend for you and i have another recommend that i actually recommended a few weeks back but i i really kind of glossed over it but i've been really listening to it a lot and i i'm interested to see what you think it was when I was giving that Wishing Well Records spiel. I mentioned that band Grave Goods. I don't know if you remember that one.
1: No, I don't.
0: Yeah. See, it, it, it came and went really fast in mm. my spiel, but I've just been really, really digging it. It's from 1992. Dutch East India, Tundra. Um, this is their full length that was not on Wishing Well, but it's called New Face Revealed. I, I'd be interested if you check that out to let me know. And again, that's that band that Colin Sears drummed on as well. But that lead singer, Paul Jenkins, man, I can't find anything else that he's been on. Uh, but it's it's just an awesome record. Grave Goods, New Face Revealed. You should check that out. I will. And then my final spiel, for sure on the tree, from in my for my money, is Scott Reynolds has got his LP coming out that he recorded with Bill Stevenson at the Blasting Room. It's called Chihuahua and Buffalo. It's a solo acoustic record. I think it's going to come out on CD first and then vinyl at a later date. But folks should check that out keep their eyes peeled for a new Scott Reynolds record. You know, the guy can sing and it's going to be uh, recorded well with Bill at the helm. And uh, people should check that out. Always pumped
1: to get some more Scott Reynolds stuff. Right on. That's all I got, man. What do you got? I have, Ryan, some stuff that's coming out on the excellent Cherry Red Records label.
0: Ooh, I think I saw these too. Go for it.
1: Okay, so there's some, some box sets. Mud Honey, Real Low Vibe. It's the reprise recordings, 1992 to 1998. So it's got Piece of Cake, My Brother the Cow, Tomorrow Hit Today, and a shit ton of B-sides and sampler tracks and a live recording from Seattle in 1993.
0: I haven't taken the time to figure out whether I'm missing anything on it, but you know what happens if I'm missing one of those tracks. You are, you're missing
1: for sure. (laughs) (laughs) The Buzzcocks, Late for the Train, live and in session, 1989 to 2016. It's a six CD box set, five live shows, and 32 BBC tracks, 137 tracks total, all from the the post-reformation era. Wow. Yeah
0: that's a lot of live buzzcocks
1: yep and then on the ss tree Jay maskus fed up and feeling strange live and in person 1993 to 1998 it's 3 cd's it's a a set of solo acoustic performances it's got the live at cbgb's it's got oh, yeah. it's got martin and me but then there's a third disc of unreleased live recordings plus liner notes by byron coley And also, it looks like Martin and me is getting a vinyl release on Cherry Red. Cool.
0: I thought I saw on Cherry Red too; they're releasing a Buzzcocks 7-inch single box set as well. Hmm. That would make it their third Buzzcocks box set this year. Could be. Wow.
1: Ryan, I'm going to dip into the zone. Oh, man. Okay, the label's called American Laundromat Records, and... The comp is called A Tribute to Repo Man. It came out in 2012. It's got all... I don't know a ton of these artists, but all the versions of these songs are pretty cool. It's got a band called Those Darlings. They do the title track, Justice, for sure. There's a group called Polar Bear Club, and they do TV Party, and it's really cool. Uh, Amanda Palmer who's in a band called the Dresden Dolls, who I don't really know too well. She does a really cool version of Institutionalized. It's got Frank Black doing the plugs, and it's got Mike Watt and the Second Men doing Fear's Let's Have a War. It's a really cool version of what's one of the greatest movie soundtracks ever, in my opinion. Yeah, no doubt.
0: American Laundromat did a very cool Wes Anderson
1: uh, soundtrack tribute as well. Yeah, I saw that. It's got Mike Watt on it as well. Yeah. Uh, and then, Ryan, I checked out the Elephant Tree Habits record that you recommended. Yes, and? It's okay. And? It didn't <gasps> blow me away, but it's okay. What? <gasps> Just okay? Yeah. It was almost like a little symphonic or something, if that makes oh. sense.
0: Heaven forbid. Yeah. Man, I got to work real hard to get some street cred with you, okay?
1: I'm going to double down in the next few weeks here. I want my Doom Rock to be a little more Sabbath y. <sighs> okay. Well, can't win them all. Yeah. Okay, and then Ryan, I just quickly have the you section of my get this shit off my phone. The Ultras, the complete handbook of songwriting. It's an EP from 1991. They're a glam punk band from LA on Triple X Records. Their drummer Jeff was in the Jeff Dahl band and this band is mentioned a lot in Bruce Duff's Smell of Death book, which is why I checked them out. Yeah. Okay, The Unforgiven. Ryan, soul album In 1986, Steve Jones from the Stepmothers was the singer in this band. Uh, John Hickman, who went on to Cracker, was in this band. They kind of remind me a little bit of that great band you introduced me to called The Brandos, although The Brandos are way way cooler in my opinion. They are somehow on the tree. I don't know how, but I checked this record out because one of our guests was in this band. They don't play on the album, and I cannot figure out what the connection is, so if someone out there knows, let us know, but uh, The Unforgiven. Unorthodox, Asylum, 1993, the debut album on Hellhound Records, Great Obsessed-style doom rock on German label Hellhound Records. Hey, and speaking of The Obsessed, uh, Wino was just on this podcast called The Josta Show, I think is what it's called. And he mentions in that interview that he's writing his memoirs right now.
0: Wino is? Yeah. Wow. That would be interesting.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uniform choice, Ryan. Staring into the sun, 1988. Giant Records. I don't really know this band or their history, but I checked them out because we were talking about them recently on the Blast episode. Yeah. Uh, that's
0: that's their melodic hardcore album.
1: Yeah. I like this one. It reminds me of New Wind Era 7 Seconds, which I'm a fan of.
0: Yeah, dude, that's why you got to check out that Grave Goods record.
1: Okay. Kay? You
0: got to check that record out.
1: I want to know what you think. Okay. UFO Mamet, I think is how you say the band name. Godlike Snake, 1999, their debut. Psychedelic Doom Rock from Italy. Uh, they're apparently on hi- hiatus right now following the departure of their drummer. Udo. Solid is the name of the record. This is the band Udo Dirkschneider formed after leaving Accept. He has many great albums. He's still going strong. This was kind of a comeback record for him after uh, Udo went on hiatus and he rejoined Accept for three albums in the 90s. Ultravox, Ryan. British synth-driven new wave with a touch of prog. Midge Ure and Rusty Egan were in the were in the band Rich Kids with Glenn Matlock, Post Pistols, and then they did this band. I did the record Vienna. I I don't know. Are you into Ultravox? No, not really, man. I don't know. We've talked a lot on this podcast about, you know, maybe artists that we were close-minded about or sounds. You know, like this this band's pretty synthy. Wrote them off as like a crappy 80s band or something, but worth checking out again. Yeah, for me. I'm going to check it, check them out. Yeah, I hear you. Okay, Untamed Youth, a favorite of yours in mind. I did An Invitation to Planet Mace, their second from last record. Love Untamed Youth. Deke Dickerson to this day is still one of my favorite surf guitarists. Sure wish they'd do another record. And then Ryan, yeah. I did Ultra Bidet, God is God. Puke is is puke. puke. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, we saw them separately the year. uh, I think it was around 95 maybe uh, with Alice Donut and No Means No. I always cite them as an example when I'm talking about seeing bands live pre-internet and not being able to watch them on YouTube or check them out on Bandcamp or whatever prior prior to going to see them. Because I guarantee you, Almost nobody in the venue the night I saw them knew who Ultra Bidet was, but everybody who was there was completely blown away by them. Same here.
0: No, yeah. one, had a cl- no one had a clue. You may have seen I their didn't. name. Yeah, I, had a, I didn't have a clue. You may have seen their name in an Alternative Tentacles catalog, maybe, and that's it, baby. And then you saw yeah. them and you're like, whoa. And they were awesome. And they were such nice guys, too.
1: Yeah, that record's really great too. I still listen to it all the time.
0: All their records are good.
1: They've got three yeah. or four others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are good. This one is is the best for me though.
0: It was yeah. Well, it's it's for me my favorite as well because it was like my my entry drug yeah. or whatever. For right. Sure.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's it, man. We're rounding the corner on getting this shit off my phone. Wow, man. Thought I was going to catch hell for not having any you men unsane or like, uh, I don't know, unwound or something on my phone.
0: But you need to keep that on your phone. That's the, that's, you did did well. You did well. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Keep that on your phone. All right. I'm actually like a little displeased that you're taking that Ultra B-Day off your phone, but I'm sure there's. Oh, it'll be, it'll be back. It'll be back. I
1: got you. It's all about the rotation, right? That's right. Yeah. All right. Should we get into some Scott D of Colby? Let's do it. History lesson, part one.
0: So, we've had Scott D. of Colby on the show before, musically, on some Zug's Rift recordings. Has he been on any Henry Kaiser recordings yet that we've covered?
1: Actually, I have a little history lesson that I wrote up here uh, that I think I got everything that okay. he's been on.
0: Okay, I made a list too. I didn't have any Kaiser, but hit me with it and I'll double check.
1: Okay. So Scott was born December 21st, 1953, in New York City. He's known for his slide guitar and dobro playing, primarily collaborating with Henry Kaiser and Zoogs Rift. Uh, in 1973, he joined the Dada rock band Zobus in New Jersey, just as they were getting started, and that, is, of course, is the band that was led by Zoogs Rift. According to Zoogs, uh, in his Clams in a Glass book, he was introduced to both Scott and Richie Haas by short-lived Zobas sax player Philip Johnston, a.k.a. Smago. <laughs> 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 Henry Kaiser uh, has described Scott's unique style as kind of playing a reverse bar chord, which I yep. think is a pretty good way of describing it. I agree, yep,
0: for sure. Yeah.
1: Uh, with Zobis, after years of trying to get a record deal, including uh, moving to New York City, on May 1st, 1977, the band moved to Los Angeles. You're going to hear more about this in the interview, but Zugs also mentions in the book that after moving to LA, that Zobis sax player Mooch Urban and Scott had trouble getting along. Uh, but he also says in the book that once they got to LA, Zugs announced, and I quote, I had decided the name change to Micromastodons was now definite. And in fact, the band would now be called Zoo's Rifts Micromastodons, and that I would now be making all decisions. Rich and Mooch didn't put up much resistance, but Scott was pissed off and refused to stand for it. He quit the band, and there were hard feelings between Scott and the three of us for years to come. After that, Scott began performing around L.A. and various bands, which you'll hear about in the interview. He also uh, began playing on some Zoogs albums later on, and we've seen him on episode 77, The Island of Living Puke. Episode 88, Looser Than Clams, which has a Zobis track on it called The Eiffel Tower. You can also hear a few Zobis tracks on the digital version of Idiots on the Miniature Golf Course, such as Would You Fib to the FBI and The Man Who Slugged Your Mother. We've heard him on episode 120, Ipecac, 121, Interim Resurgence, and we also saw him pop up on episode 110, Crazy Backwards Alphabet, and on episode 102, No Age. We'll also be seeing him on episode 237, Henry Kaiser's Alternate Versions record, and who knows where else he might pop up. I'm sure we'll see him again. Now if you recall Ryan, on top of reissuing the four Zoogs Rift albums in 1987, SST also released Water and Water 2, as well as the cassette-only Son of Puke, which we'll be getting to in about 25 more episodes. So always worth a reminder that that's seven Zoogs albums in one year, and then eight if you count this, which he produced. He mentions the sleight-of-hand record briefly in his book, saying only that he was disappointed with the end result, feeling that, quote, my hands were tied and that the LP didn't have the Zugs' Rift edge that it could have and should have had. And as you'll hear in the interview, they clashed over the role Zugs should play as a producer. Yeah. It was recorded in July and August of 1987 at Mark Myler's Trigon Studios in Canoga Park, California. A number of guests appear on the record, which we'll talk about in the interview, Uh, but the core band was Willie Lapin on bass and Mark Crawford on drums, who were the rhythm section on ZOOG's Water 2, Safe at a Distance, record. Should we throw it over to Scott D. of Colby? Sure, man. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Scott Colby. Scott, thanks for being on the show.
2: My pleasure. Thank you, Brent.
1: Now, I'm wondering if you can take me back to where you grew up, and when you started playing guitar.
2: Ah, okay, wow, we're going way, way back. All right, Uh, I grew up on Long Island, New York. Um, I was born in Brooklyn and then grew up on Long Island, and uh, I was always interested in music, and um, because of my age, when the Beatles hit on the Ed Sullivan show, uh, I was at at just the right age super impressionable and of course like so many other people uh, of my generation captivated by uh the 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 infectious joy and the the upbeat feeling of the music and of course became captivated by the idea of playing music and some years later because it took me a while when i was in high school i had some friends who were playing music to varying degrees nobody particularly accomplished but everybody doing it for fun And I decided to start trying to play bass guitar, and I thought I could teach myself bass, because like so many people, I was under the mistaken impression that, oh, well, it's only got four strings, and you only have to play one note at a time instead of a chord, so that'll be easier to learn. Uh, Only discovered, (laughs) as time went on, that uh, bass playing is a whole art unto itself, and requires a great deal of melodic skill and knowledge of chords and, uh, and, and scales, but... I was, I would say at best, a mediocre, average mediocre bass player struggling along with anything that was tricky, and then it just so happened that because when I was younger, like I said, from the influence of the Beatles, I had decided I'd like to try to learn guitar, and my parents had had purchased a very inexpensive acoustic guitar for me to take guitar lessons on, which I did for a few weeks. And then I had a bad sprain of one of my fingers that required me to have the finger immobilized in one of those little foam and metal things that you, they bandage your finger into to keep it completely still. Right. And I never resumed the guitar lessons because I was a kid and I was impatient. I wanted to be able to play music like I was hearing on the radio. And here I had a guitar teacher that was trying to teach me how to play you know, little folk tunes one note at a time like uh, on top of old Smokey or (laughs) or something just really almost nursery rhyme-like in its simplicity. And that was just too frustrating for me. I wanted to be playing rock and roll. so I had never gone back to it. And the guitar, which my parents wisely did not spend much money on, went down into our basement and stayed there and stayed there and was there for years. And so now when I was uh, a struggling, mediocre bass player, I was down in the basement one day and picked up the guitar to try fooling around with it, and the neck had become bowed. Um, For anybody who's not familiar with what that means, it means the neck is curved because the strings had never been detuned on it. They were left at full tension, and being a cheap guitar, it didn't have a strong truss rod to protect the neck from bending. So the neck had bent (laughs) from the strings pulling on it, so you could actually pretty much slide your fingers, especially if you were a kid like me. You could slide your fingers between the strings and the fretboard, which is not a good thing (laughs) if you're trying (laughs) to play guitar. But I was fooling around with it, and I somewhere along the line, I think I had seen Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones playing bottleneck slide guitar with the Rolling Stones on The Ed Sullivan Show. So I knew if you put a slide on your finger, you could slide across notes instead of having to finger it. And in my (laughs) youthful naivete, I thought, oh, well, I wouldn't have to know chords. I could maybe play rhythm guitar if I just tuned to an open chord. And so I was fooling around with that and to wind up this really long story, (laughs) um, because the neck action was so high, I one day just out of curiosity tried pressing down on one of the strings behind the slide to see if I could fret that note while the other other strings were being... uh, intonated by the slide, and I discovered, oh, I can play a minor chord this way by taking this one note down one fret from all the other notes. So instead of being a major chord, it was minor. That was a revelation to me, mm-hmm. and I started thinking, well, what other notes could I press down, and what chords could I make? And the next thing you know, I start working out this whole theory of different chords and chord substitutions. And uh, as far as I knew, nobody else was doing that, Uh, I did find out years later that uh, a great guitar player from Louisiana named Sonny Landreth, who's almost the same age as me, had started playing the same way, except he learned how to play guitar for real. He actually knew how to play guitar, but he was playing slide, and then one day he also decided to see what happens if you fret a note behind the slide and had the same discovery as me and went off and discovered how to play the chords. And so he and I got to meet years later, and it was funny to discover that we had a similar uh, origin of our style, and we even discovered that our guitars are set up the same way. We use fairly heavy strings, open tuning, and we fret notes behind the slide the same way. But that's, anyway, a little detour in the story, but that's how I got started playing guitar. Yeah,
1: no, I was going to ask you about your unique style of playing, so totally by accident, I guess.
2: It did start by accident, and then I would just ask questions a lot Like, uh, I would ask other people that knew how to play regular guitar or piano, hey, here are the notes of this chord that I'm making when I put my fingers in this shape, in this position behind the slide. It sounds pretty. It sounds kind of like a jazz chord. What is it? And then they would tell me, okay, that's a ninth chord, or, oh, that's a major seventh, or uh, that's uh, a major ninth. and gradually and then uh, it got to also that that one's an augmented and that one's a diminished chord and i tried figuring out as i went along whichever ones sounded good that i might be able to use and keep in my in my quiver of, of, of chords that i could pull out when playing with people um that's that's how it developed it was really trial and error i did end up taking music theory in college and um as a result of that, that helped fill in a lot of the gaps. And I can, I can read and write music, but unfortunately, I never applied myself to the point where I could sight-read music. I can't I can just sit down in front of sheet music and start playing it immediately. Right. I can sit down and figure out, okay, that's an E, that's a B, that's a G, and I can figure out the melody, and I can read what the, the rhythms are, and if it's syncopated, um, I can figure that out, and then I can figure out how to play it slowly and then gradually work up to full tempo.
1: Okay. Uh, When did you meet Robert (laughs) Polakowski?
2: Robert Polakowski, a.k.a. Zug's Rift. I was in college, and um, gosh, this would have probably been around 1972 or 1973, I guess. I was in college, and I was home on a break, and my sister, um, who was younger than me, had invited me to go to Uh, a party. Um, I don't even remember what kind of a party, birthday or something else for one of her girlfriends. And I was home with nothing to do. And I was kind of bored. And I thought, okay, sure, I'll go along. And I went. And while I was there, I struck up a conversation with a guy who was there who turned out to be a musician. Also, he played saxophone and piano. And his name was Philip Johnston. And we stayed in, in touch a little bit. Uh, But we didn't really correspond much, and and we had just sort of exchanged a couple of messages like, oh, yeah, it's cool that we each like interesting music, atypical music, Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart and other things like that. But then we didn't stay in touch much. I went back to college in New Jersey, and then one day I got a call from him saying that he was playing in a band with a guy named Robert Polakowski. The band was called Zobus. And they were about to lose their guitar player, and he recommended that they check me out. And so that's how I got in touch uh, in the first place with, with that band and became friends with Robert Polakowski, uh, who would later change his name to Zoogs Rift. And I joined the band Zobus. We were a good fit. And the core of the band, because the personnel kept changing, but the core of the band was Zug's Rift. On lead vocals and occasional synthesizer, and every now and then some guitar. He started playing a lot more guitar much later. Right. And another guy named Richie Haas, who played vibes and marimba and drum kit and assorted percussion, including brake drums, which were literally the metal brake drums that you could put into cars. And uh, if you got them in different sizes, they had approximate pitches. And if you hit them with a hard mallet, they had a very satisfying clang and then we had various bass players and drummers um and occasionally a sax player and the band went on for a while and then eventually decided we're not going to get anywhere here in in new jersey and new york we got to play at a few clubs but we should probably move out to la i took a lot of convincing i was really hesitant to do so but they finally convinced me and we moved out to la and then unfortunately kind of had a falling out after we were trying to live together and discovered that we weren't really good roommates. Uh,
1: before we get to your move to L.A. with Zoogs, uh, I'm wondering sure. if you can tell me about the Delaware Valley Festival of the Avant-Garde in 1974.
2: Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, that was one of the gigs. Zoogs was very big on you know keeping his eye out for opportunities where we could play Because we were uh, playing very unusual music that was influenced by, again, Frank Zappa, Captain Beefheart, um, the Fugs, the Bonzo Dog Band, but also influenced by the Three Stooges, professional wrestling, and and any number of other odd stuff. Because Zugs was a Dadaist and uh, a, a big fan of the Dada art movement. And so he found out about this festival and he got in touch with the people that were putting it on and arranged for us to play there and we went and we played and um during the course of it Zugs had decided to stage kind of an art happening he was going to just publicly destroy a whole bunch of his old audio recordings drawings paintings anything that he had created films little home homemade uh, films that he had been trying to to put together anything and everything I think he—I don't know if he preserved a few things that he really wanted to save. I think he always maintained that either everything or close to everything went into this big trash can <laughs> that he set on fire. He called this the Daytonacy. That was just the word he made up for it. Right. Um, unfortunately, if I recall correctly, uh, when he set it on fire and it started generating a lot of smoke because there were combustible items in there. It, it wasn't explosive or anything, but it created enough smoke that uh, it alarmed some people, and I think the police or fire department came over and uh, chewed us out really thoroughly in addition to putting out the flames. Um, I think zoos would sometimes say that it started a small riot, but that that was a bit of a <laughs> poetic license. <All> right.
1: <laughs> uh, so May 1st, 1977, you leave for L.A., and yep. as you mentioned, you have a falling out with Zoogs, which seems to be <laughs> uh, par for the course if you're in Zoogs' orbit. We've talked to a few people that have had falling outs with Zoogs. But you're in and out of his band kind of after that. Um, you play on some True. of his records.
2: The, the best thing I, 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 I should point out that Zoogs and I liked each other. We, we liked each other and we were good friends. It's just that at times we could each rub each other the wrong way and i would say in Zub's defense because i i'm not surprised to hear that other people might have said that uh, it was easy to have a falling out with him he could at times be very black or white very extreme you were either his absolute good friend completely loyal and a big fan of what he was doing or if you disagreed with him about something or were critical about something that he had done or whatever he could just decide that you weren't really a friend, you were not a true friend, and that was that. And so you could end up on his, uh, (laughs) I'll keep this clean, I'll say his naughty list, (laughs) and uh, he might suddenly just break off all contact with you, and he wouldn't talk with you if you tried to call him or if you left a message on his answering machine. What happened with us was really when we first moved out here, it was Zoogs and Richie Haas and a sax player named Bill Mooch Urban. Right. Um, and the four of us were living in a two-bedroom apartment. We were sharing a two-bedroom apartment. And that was just close quarters for four <laughs> guys to be in. It was like the the old story of the odd couple where you have somebody who's more of a neatnik and other people who are sloppy. Zoogs and Richie were a pretty complimentary pair, but Mooch Urban and I... We're not a good pair to be sharing the same bedroom and the same bathroom, and so it got to the point where they decided that the four of us couldn't all live together. It was just not working, and they decided without telling me that they were going to find an apartment or or a a small house they could rent where the three of them were going to go, and I think they basically – drew straws, and Richie Haas ended up being the unfortunate person who got the short straw and was tasked with telling me. And I guess maybe diplomacy wasn't his strong suit in this instance anyway, because the way he presented it to me was basically, yeah, we're we're all not getting along with the four of us living here, so the three of us have decided we're going to rent a house. Where are you going to live? <laughs> it, it It may not have been quite that bad the way he put it, but that's how it came across, where right. I just felt stunned because... We didn't know anyone in Los Angeles except Zugs' half-brother, who was already living out here, who had found the apartment for us to rent. So here I was, I didn't have a job yet, and I didn't have any friends or social network, no relatives, and suddenly I was being told, uh, I had to go find a place to live on my own. And I I guess I I had my feelings hurt, and I felt disrespected and that it was very inconsiderate of them, so... I just, you know, went off and found an apartment in a hurry, and kind of washed my hands of them and didn't want anything more to do with them. But I, I can't even remember who who had whose phone number and how we got back in touch. But after a while, we kind of mended fences, and they uh, acknowledged that the way they had handled telling me that I needed to go find an apartment on my own was not very 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 considerate okay. and we managed to mend fences enough that we were able to start occasionally socializing and I would go check out what they were doing with new people coming into their band and then as time went on I occasionally would, would do some recording with them and other times uh, we would not be in touch that often. It was an on-again, off-again thing. Right.
1: So tell me about what you did next musically. Was it the band Little Triggers?
2: I think so. Yes, actually, it started off. I had met a guitar player and songwriter named uh, Brett Phillips, or not, excuse me, not Brett, Britt, Britt Phillips. And um, I can't even remember how. I I may have answered an ad, or maybe they answered an ad that I had put out. I honestly don't remember how we met, but I went over, and after he got over the initial surprise at trying to figure out what I was doing because. Regular guitar players, when they look at my hands, what I'm playing doesn't make any sense to them. I'm making chords behind the slide in an open tuning. It just doesn't compute. Uh, But after he got past the fact that it looked odd, he thought, well, actually, I like what you're playing, and it sounds like when you and I play together, it works pretty well, so would you like to join this band that I'm in the process of reorganizing? And that was a band that became known as Adjustable Julie. And I think it was in the course of being in the band Adjustable Julie that we ended up uh, going through different bass players and drummers and uh, occasionally a lead singer. And we ended up deciding to audition bass players. And as a result of auditioning bass players for that band, that's how we met Willie Lappin. And Willie Lappin had been playing in uh, some other bands here in LA. He'd been active for a long time. I think he was a native Angelino. And. Um, so that be, that became the core of that band, which then changed its name to Little Triggers, taking its name from the title of an Elvis Costello song, which I was always a little—I always felt awkward about. Right. Um, it was a good name for a band, but I sort of felt like shouldn't you take the name of a song from like completely different generation or decades, like like the band Deep Purple did, right. uh, because that was the title of a, of a song from decades earlier than they came about, but. That became Little Triggers, and then eventually, as that band went through personnel changes, a decision was made that, well, maybe Little Triggers isn't a, a, a terrific name either. Let's try something else, and they went with the name Pressure, which I was outvoted on because I thought that that just sounded way too run-of-the-mill. like Any band could call itself Pressure, and I thought, let's try to do something unique. But all the band names I came up with, they said <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty good. Why don't you save that for a solo project and use (laughs) that later? And so I just shrugged my shoulders, and Adjustable Julie went to little triggers, and then went to pressure.
1: Okay. Now, did any of these bands record anything and release anything?
2: We never released anything. um, When we were little triggers, and then when we became pressure with some more personnel changes, we recorded some demo tapes. And we made what I guess is a pretty common mistake, which is that you start treating your demo recording session as if it was going to be a release quality album. And so we started, you know, well, let's overdub uh, a little piano on this to double that line, or let's overdub some timbales to add to the drummer on this track. and, and let's uh, let's double some background vocals. And so they they ended up being recorded, and they were a decent approximation of what the band sounded like but uh, they were never released anywhere um... willy lapin still has uh... copies of them and uh... at some point I, he he burned a cd for me so i've got that around somewhere and i pulled it out once to listen to because it had been so long since i heard it on audio cassette right and the stuff we were doing was kind of new age with uh, a strong infusion of some reggae ska and latin influences and it was We weren't bad. We got to play out some local clubs and, uh, unfortunately, never really developed a large following. But the people that came and saw us, there were some people that came and saw us multiple times, and uh, they definitely seemed to like it. We got a good reaction. We got to play some good clubs, including the Palomino.
1: How did you meet Mark Crawford, the drummer on, on your solo record?
2: Mark Crawford I met through Henry Kaiser. Uh, Henry Kaiser uh, and I had become friends in 1978, and he very excitedly had told me about this band in the Bay Area uh, where he lived uh, that had three guitar players, and now he had joined them as a fourth guitar player, and there was also a bass player and a drummer and somebody who, who would play a little keyboard as well and, and, uh, and sing lead vocals. And that was a band called NAME, N-A-M-E, like the name of this band is NAME. Um, Sometimes I think it was put in all caps, but I'm not sure if that was uh, a a consistently applied rule. And Mark Crawford and his brother Rick Crawford were in that band. Rick Crawford played bass, if I remember correctly. Uh, Well, he may have played guitar, but I I think it was bass. And Mark Crawford was the drummer. And I thought the band was terrific. Henry sent me... Uh, some some demos and some sort of almost bootleg quality live recordings that they had captured, which ended up eventually being cleaned up and released um, in kind of an independent release way with privately pressed, very limited pressing. Right. Um, and they also had done an EP the same way, except the EP was done in a professional recording studio. And the drummer in particular, I was very impressed with Mark Crawford And I found out that he had taken drum lessons at a certain point from Narada Michael Walden, who was well-known at the time primarily for being a a fusion and jazz rock drummer who had worked with uh, the second lineup of uh, John McLaughlin's Mahavishnu Orchestra after the original lineup kind of imploded. And uh, Narada Michael Walden, of course, went on to do a whole bunch more R&B stuff and be involved as a producer as well. I believe he also recorded with Jeff Beck. Uh, he's a terrific drummer, and Mark Crawford had definitely developed some pretty impressive drum chops, uh, partly on his own and partly, I guess, with the lessons he took from Narada Michael Walden.
1: Let's skip ahead now to your solo record, Slide of Hand. Do you have any yeah. idea how it came to be that this record was released on SST?
2: Yes. It just so happened that Zoogs Rift, who I was again friendly with at this time, and Henry Kaiser, who I had become very good friends with, were both, uh, had both um, made arrangements, or I don't know if it would really be considered signing a record contract, but they had made arrangements with FST to um, produce, publish, distribute their albums at that time. This was in the uh, mid and late 80s. And I don't remember which of them had the idea first, but once one of them had the idea, the other one went with it as well. They approached SST, and they each independently said, hey, there's this guy that's a friend of ours who's a really good slide guitar player, and you guys should do a solo album with him. And I guess it was just the two of them must have said enough positive and enthusiastic things uh, to SST that SST decided to take take a chance and they offered me the opportunity to record a solo album. There was you know, no discussion yet of whether anything else would follow. Unfortunately for me, they decided that they were only going to risk a, a very small amount of money as a recording budget. I believe they gave me the princely sum of $1,500 to record the entire album. <laughs> um, nowadays, with people doing a lot of home recording, I don't know whether that is easy to put in perspective, but at the time... It was pretty common for people to spend $20,000, $30,000, $50,000 recording an album because they would go into a recording studio and uh, they would have to pay for rehearsal time first. And here I wanted to do an album. I knew it was going to be all instrumental, and I knew I wanted to have some actual horn players on it. That was a big influence of Frank Zappa's original Mothers of Invention. I really loved the sound of sax and trombone in particular. Right. And I knew there were at least two, and then it turned out three songs where I wanted real horns on it. So Zoog said, hey, my friend Mark Mylar has a studio in his house. It's, it's not really like the whole house was converted into a studio. It's basically, we set up the drums in the living room, <laughs> we put the bass guitar uh, amp down the hall, and we put the guitar amp Uh, in one of the bedrooms and close the door to try to get separation. And then we set up microphones. And then in the other bedroom is where Mark Mylar sits with his recording console. So it was done very much on the cheap Um, because I wanted to have actual horn players. And that meant that they would need uh, to be able to read my horn charts that I was writing. I ended up dipping into my very limited savings uh, and got out of, I think I spent $700 of my own money so that I could be able to pay the horn players and, of course, Willie Lappin, uh, who was playing bass on everything, and Mark Crawford, who was drumming on all but uh, one of the tracks with drums. And then I wanted to be able to pay not only the horn players, but also John French, who is also known as Drumbo, from his many years playing with Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band. I had, I had become friends with John as well, through meeting him um in a side project that henry did a concert at ucla with two members of a british band called henry Cow, fred frith and chris cutler and henry kaiser and john french and at it, at that concert i had met john french and we hit it off and i knew that i'd really like to be able to have him play on w- at least one track uh on my album and he was nice enough to come in and just use mark crawford's drum kit and oh. he had one rehearsal <laughs> to, to learn it whereas the uh the, the core rhythm section which was willie Lappin on bass and mark crawford on drums and i on guitar would set up in zoogs rift's um condominium apartment and we, we would turn down low and put uh i don't know if it was towels or pieces of cloth or t-shirts or whatever on the drums so that we wouldn't make too much noise and annoy Zoog's neighbors and we rehearsed the material there so they got to have I think we had a good week of rehearsal, but John French only got to have one rehearsal that we did at a local rehearsal studio that I paid for. Mm. Uh, And then the horn players basically had to just come in and read the charts, read through them, do a quick run-through to make sure that they were playing the parts correctly. And, you know, if if I had to tweak what I had written on the the horn charts or if, if they were reading a part wrong or something, we had a chance to... To catch it but I believe we did all the horns it, it, on one day if my memory is correct they all came in and we just had to do them all one after the other
1: I'm going to ask you some more about those uh, horn players in a minute here when we go through the tracks but you had all these songs written then like I'm assuming were you was the plan leading up to this to do a solo record is that something that you were thinking you wanted to do It was
2: never long in the planning at all. I was primarily somebody who saw myself as a member of a band. I liked the dynamic and the social interaction and camaraderie of being in a band with people who you are friends with and have a lot of intersecting and similar musical tastes and you enjoy each other's company. I had not really been envisioning myself as a solo artist, but once the idea came up, And Zugs and Henry were both so enthusiastic and encouraging me to do it, I said, well, sure. And it had just so happened that in the course of being friends with Henry on a visit that I had made up to where he lived in the Berkeley, Oakland area a few years earlier, I had recorded uh, a couple of things with him that he set up um, in his little home recording studio to just create with a, he was using what's called a Lin, L-I-N-N, Lin drum machine that he had gotten. And he would program some fairly simple beats, and I would lay down like a rhythm guitar and then overdub uh, a melody or lead guitar. And I had recorded Slide of hand that way and uh, a good talking to that way both of which I made up on the spot because he said, come on, we should make a demo recording of you so that you have something to give people when you're auditioning for a band (laughs) so they can hear what you can do. And so I had just made up sleight of hand on the spur of the moment. And for a good talking to, Henry had said, why don't you try making up some chords and play something over it with this, uh, this special effect pedal that makes the guitar sound like you're using speech rhythms, like you're talking with the guitar. And so that's what I did. And it just so happened that after having done both of them, I liked the way they turned out. So I thought, all right, I can use those on the album. And I think I also had Sure Looks That Way, which was an instrumental uh, on side one when it originally came out on vinyl, that I had written some time back, maybe a year or two earlier, just playing around on my own. But I hadn't worked out a middle section for it. I just had the basic rhythm of it, which was in seven eight time signature, and I liked that. And then the other stuff came about because it was, all right, well, heck, I'm gonna be recording an album, I gotta come up with some more material. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I just set about trying to play around on guitar and see if any ideas came out. There was only one that didn't come about from me fooling around that way, and that one was a, a song called Weight of the World. I, I had a day job at the time, and I used to walk to a nearby restaurant for lunch. And on my way back to my job from lunch, I just started humming a melody idea. And then I could imagine in my head what a good harmony line for that would be. And I got really enthused and I thought, this is kind of an interesting chord progression. Uh, I should just take it back. That wasn't way to the world. That was obligatory blues. So there were two of these where this happened for obligatory blues, um, which is the one I'm talking about. Um, I went and found a payphone and called my home answering machine and sang the melody line to make sure that I couldn't forget it. So when I got (laughs) home, I'd be able to reconstruct it. The other one that I started talking about first by mistake, Weight of the World, that one, um, there was somebody that uh, I was having. uh, I had kind of a very strong romantic interest in a particular woman, and it became clear that the relationship wasn't going to work out uh it wasn't something that was going to be pursuable and i was really depressed and really emotional and i was driving home and this melody just came into my head and i got home and i pulled out the guitar and i stayed up for hours playing the melody and then figuring out what the chords were and then i recorded a little demo of it and i played it for zoogs and he said yep you should put that on the album
1: (laughs) okay the others
2: just came out from my fooling around with stuff at home and actually, two songs, the ones on which I'm not playing electric guitar, those actually were not recorded at Mark Mylar's studio. They were recorded in my little tiny one room, basically, uh, apartment using uh, a Porta studio, which was a, uh, div- a little home recording studio where you could put a standard audio cassette tape in there, but you could record four tracks instead of having to play, uh, like record two tracks on one side and then flip the tape over it was set up so you could use the two tracks per side, but all going in the same direction at the same time so you could record four tracks. Mm. So that's how I recorded and Wood and Staring Out the Window at Home.
1: Metal and Wood, it's I believe it says on the LP, is mostly improvised.
2: It was. I, I put that little footnote in there because I felt guilty saying all selections composed by me. I did compose them, and I know that from a strict definition. You could say, well, I even composed metal and wood, even if I composed it spontaneously. But for that one, I just, I had a little rough idea of a melody that I could play on the kalimba, which is a thumb piano. Uh, It's kind of a Western version of an African instrument that uses strips of metal of different lengths that are um, laid into a a box with a hole in it. And it has, they have a piece of wood stuck under them and the pieces of metal are at different lengths, and when you strike them, they make a sound like depending on whether it's long or short. And so I decided to try playing something on the kalimba based off this little thing I'd been fooling with, and then I overdubbed myself on dobro and just improvised something on top of it. And like I say, I just felt guilty calling it a composition because I was thinking, well, I didn't sit down and decide, I'm going to use this part here and play that part there. It was really just all right, here's a kalimba idea, I'll fool with it, and now I'll overdub something and see if I like it. And (laughs) I think I ended up keeping my first take on the dobro part. It just, I I knew kind of the mood I wanted and just thought, yeah, that's okay, I like that.
1: (laughs) You mentioned the song Staring Out the Window, which, again, is like solo bottleneck dobro. Did you ever play shows like that, just yourself?
2: I never did. That one was something where I, it was from sitting down and fooling around when I was trying to play ideas that I could turn into songs to record with the band. I started playing this kind of a simple little melodic thing that had a wistful kind of melancholy feel to it, and then I got the idea, oh, well maybe I could record that and try overdubbing harmony on on this melody line. I'll play it once just the melody and then I'll overdub a, a second part that's a harmony, and then I thought, well, why stop there? Let's try adding a third line of harmony and then I added a fourth dobro, basically just playing a couple of picked notes at certain points. And uh, this was back in 1987. At the time, there had been a story in the news about the fact that various celestial bodies, certain planets, were going to be in an alignment that was something that had never happened before and wouldn't happen for hundreds of years again. And they were calling it the harmonic convergence. And I think some New Age people thought that, that might have some sort of significance, or maybe people who were into astrology, it, it just seemed to be the kind of thing that, that was getting a lot of buzz at the time. And so when I was trying to add, you know, silly little smartass or um, play on words, pun kind of uh, liner notes, I just decided for that one to say it was Instead of four Dobros playing in harmony, I wrote four Dobros in harmonic convergence. But now, of course, it's, it's so long ago, I don't even know if I even remember the harmonic convergence, so it's a dated reference.
1: <laughs> Let's talk about some of these other players. Jim German on tenor sax.
2: I honestly can't tell you a lot about most of the uh, horn players. I can only tell you about two of them. There was Bruce Fowler whose trombone playing I knew about from his work with Frank Zappa and then with uh, Captain Beefheart's Magic Band when he um, put an album out called uh, Shiny Beast, Bat Chain Puller, and uh, Bruce Fowler was playing with him and then also played with him on dock at the radar station. I had met Bruce very casually by going to some local concerts here that were put on by some jazz rock guys, and I knew the names of some of the people involved, And so they wouldn't be the names that would draw huge crowds, but for people that were aware of them and of who they had played with, you would go and check them out. And the other reason that I knew him a little bit is I had become friends with Ruth Underwood and Ian Underwood, both of whom had played with Frank Zappa. And um, I knew that they were friends with Bruce. And I got in touch with Bruce through, I think, Ruth and Ian, and told him I was going to be recording this album and asked whether he'd be willing to play as part of a horn ensemble on one track. And, you know, it's kind of an incentive. I was saying I was was not going to be able to pay him a lot, but he could also take a solo if he'd be willing, Uh, you know, as long as he was coming out, if he wanted to have a little fun instead of just reading my chart. And he agreed to do that. And then the other horn player I can tell you about is Toby Holmes. Toby was somebody that I got to meet because I went and saw a concert by a bunch of people at Cal Arts and these guys that were doing this concert were were doing arrangements of some tunes by Captain Beefheart and I had read somewhere a listing that this concert was going to take place and being a fan of Beefheart I naturally was very curious to go check it out and I did I went and saw them and then after they played these Captain Beefheart tunes that they had arranged there was also a band that some of them were in together whose name I can't remember now. And that band also played some material, which I enjoyed. And so I had gone up afterwards and introduced myself to a couple of the members of the band. And one of them was Toby Holmes, who played trombone and we exchanged contact information. And when I was going to be recording this album and knew that I wanted to have real horns other than asking Bruce Fowler, I was thinking, do I know any other horn players? And I thought, well, I could call that guy Toby Holmes, and it's kind of a long shot because we barely knew each other. It was just from that one meeting, but I told him what I was thinking of doing, and I said, do you think you could find me someone that can play baritone sax and someone that can play alto and tenor sax? And uh, when I told him that Bruce Fowler was going to also play trombone on one of the tracks, he was very enthused because he was also a fan of Bruce Fowler. And both Bruce and Toby were nice enough when i had written out my horn charts i drove to each of their homes separately and i said okay here's the horn charts that i've written out for these three songs and here's my guitar so i can play the chords do you want to check and just make sure i haven't made any errors not only in the rhythmic notation but i was really concerned about making sure that i didn't write a horn part that might go above or below the actual range of the instrument right because this was definitely a stretch for me my knowledge of music theory did not include knowing for certain how high a note you could play on each horn and how low a note and i remember when i showed it uh, showed the horn parts to uh to toby he said that on obligatory blues he he looked and there were two trombone parts that were separate uh playing in different registers and he said well this one is a little high it would be a little high for the average trombone player like i would have trouble playing it but bruce fowler probably would not have trouble playing it he probably can do it because he's that good and sure enough bruce was able to do it and uh, when i showed the the horn charts to bruce he didn't comment on anything other than saying yeah that part's a little high but i can do it and they each made sure that my horn parts were written correctly because we were going to be operating on really limited time because I was able to pay people so little, and we only had a few days to record the whole album uh, because, of course, we were paying Mark Mylar, whose recording situation it was in his house. So I wanted to make sure beforehand that, okay, are these charts written properly so that the other horn players are going to come in without ever having seen or heard the music before? They can look at the charts, try a single run through, and then do it. And they checked them and said, yep. Yeah. They're good.
1: <laughs> Jesse Ed Davis. Tell me about him.
2: Uh, now, Jesse Ed, that brings up lots of memories. I was a huge fan of Jesse Ed Davis from his playing with uh, bluesman Taj Mahal. I, should, I shouldn't limit him to being bluesman. Taj Mahal became kind of a world music guy. He's played all sorts of stuff. He, he dabbled in, uh, in reggae and uh, a- African and Afro-Caribbean sounds. And then he relocated to Hawaii and does does stuff that also has Pacific Islands influence. But Taj Mahal's first three albums on Columbia records had Jesse Ed Davis playing lead guitar and occasionally piano. And I just loved his playing. It was kind of rock, but also with a country feel and yet also with kind of like a jazzy tone and sense of melody. And, I just, luckily enough, I was living in the San Fernando Valley down the street from a terrific little place called Bebop Records and Fine Art, which was a small little hole in the wall place. It was a record store, but they also sold art. They, they had uh, various artists' work that they would feature on the wall, so it was like a little art gallery. And they would hold concerts there because the two owners were really into promoting the arts. And... It it just so happened that I saw that upcoming at at this place, at Bebop Records, there was going to be a concert by someone named John Trudell and the Graffiti Man Band featuring Jesse Ed Davis. And my, my eyes got wide, and I thought, wow, that's like right up the street from me. I don't have to drive there. I just walk up there. And I had been there to see several concerts already, including Zoogs. So I went up there, saw John Trudell with Jesse Ed Davis and the Graffiti Man Band, I really liked what they were doing. So did Bob Dylan, who had heard their recordings that they had been working on, and they hadn't even been released yet. And Bob Dylan called them the album of the year, the best album that he had heard that year. And Jesse Ed Davis, I was a little starstruck, but I introduced myself and told him that I liked the way he played and that I was a slide guitar player. And I kind of bashfully gave him this little cassette tape that I had put together that had these things that I had recorded with Henry Kaiser and a couple other things that i had recorded at the home of another musician friend that i had made here in in, uh the la area and i believe it was a couple of weeks that went by before the phone rang out of the blue and it was jesse ed davis saying yeah i finally had time to listen to your your tape tell me more about this weird way you play slide (laughs) and so i told him how i play and uh he said he'd kind of like to see it and so we made arrangements to get together And he told me where he lived, and I drove down and met him and his wife, Kelly, and we really hit it off. He was going through a bit of a a rough period because he had come from playing with all sorts of top-name musicians on recordings and in concerts. You probably know he was at the concert for Bangladesh. He had played with Leon Russell. He had recorded with Leon Russell and Bob Dylan, and he had played with Eric Clapton, just all sorts of people. He had also been tapped to be the lead guitar player for The Faces after Ron Wood, Ronnie Wood, left uh, The Faces. And so he was on the road with them. And I believe he once told me that he got paid $1,000 a night uh, when he was on the road with them. And I remember thinking, wow, being a professional (laughs) musician in a touring rock band pays good money. But um, we hit it off. And even though he was going through this low period where he wasn't doing a lot of recordings, he was still friends with a bunch of people, and uh, he, we, we liked talking to each other and spending time, and he would tell me all sorts of entertaining stories from uh, different people he'd worked with. And so in addition to my asking John French if he would play drums on Obligatory Blues and asking my good pal Henry Kaiser if he would please play a guitar solo on Obligatory Blues, I told Jesse, you know, that night that I saw you play with John Trudell at Bebop Records and Fine Art, I went home that night, and I was humming a melody in my head that either it was a lick you played or it sounded like a lick you played, and I turned it into an instrumental. Would you be willing to come in and play a guitar solo on it? And he said, "Sure." So he came in and did it. And again, I had to pay him and the horn players, everybody. I had to pay them just pennies. It was it was so little money that I was paying everybody, unfortunately, because I just didn't have a big recording budget, and I didn't have enough in savings that I could afford to pay them what I really wanted to, because they deserved a lot right. for playing this material. It wasn't all easy like a blues progression or something. It was They had different chord progressions or sometimes time signature changes. So that was how Jesse Ed and uh, my other guest players, Henry and Bruce and John French, came about.
1: The record was produced by Zoogs. How, yes. how did that process go?
2: It was uh, turbulent <laughs> um when we were rehearsing it at zoogs's apartment where he got to hear the basic guitar bass and drums part of every song that was going to be not you know one of the two acoustic things that i did on my own he would make you know suggestions and ways in which we might want to improve something tighten up something here or he suggested that uh, on the world owes me a living that it needed a little something as a change from the, the other parts of the song, because otherwise it was a little too repetitious. So I ended up making a change and writing something on the spot, and Mark Crawford came up with a really strange drum part that fit with it. But when we got... After that, and went into the rehearsal studio for the one day that we were there, he was there, and he he was able to listen to everything and make comments and tell us if we should try something uh, another time because it didn't seem quite tight enough or if it didn't sound like somebody had their part down right. When we actually got to Mark Mylar's house, Zugs had already recorded albums there, and he had a certain way of working with Mark Mylar, which was invaluable. They already knew what they could do with the in some ways limited facilities and i mean no insult to mark mylar he got a lot out of what his equipment was but it was not a full-fledged recording studio with all the outboard gear that you would have someplace and we also had a very limited number of hours that we could record plus it being a house that wasn't completely soundproof if a helicopter like a police helicopter or a jet plane flew overhead or if mark mylar's dogs in the backyard heard somebody walking by the house and talking or something, they would start barking. Well, that would bleed into the house, and we'd have to stop recording until the noise went away. So having Zoogs and Mark Mylar know exactly how to do everything really fast was a big help, but as time went on, Zugs and I would occasionally clash over something because I had in mind that the role of the producer for my album would be kind of like George Martin was with the Beatles, where he would try to facilitate their ideas, try to bring their ideas to fruition, listen objectively and, you know, make constructive comments. Zuzu's approach was a bit more like the kind of producer who wants to put their imprint on the overall sound of the record. And in, in some ways, it started to feel to me like he was trying to intrude on the music itself. And I felt like, I need your help as the producer, but I don't want you to be changing the music that I'm writing and the music I'm playing. So we ended up having some disagreements, which occasionally got uh, a little strident, and it got to the point where eventually, I don't remember anymore what it was that was the straw that broke the camel's back, but he basically said, that's it, I'm out of here, and he left. Hmm. And I believe that was the day before we were going to have the horn players come in, and I was kind of in a panic because that meant the next day the horn players were scheduled to come and Zeus wasn't going to be there. And here's where I really have to uh, tip my hat to Willie Lappin and Mark Mylar because even though Mark had his hands full also being an engineer, he helped with listening and making suggestions, and Willie in particular because he knew the material. He was able to listen and help trying to be objective because, of course, I was frantic and trying to think of all the details and are all the horn players playing their parts exactly as I've written them? He was able to step back and listen to the big picture and was invaluable to me. And we were able to get that, that day of horn parts recorded properly. And uh, in some cases, it required certain takes being done again because we were not recording each horn player separately. We were recording the horn section together in the room with, I don't remember, it was just one two or three microphones picking them all up and trying to get a live blend of the horns because we only had a limited number of tracks to work with. I can't remember if it was eight? I can't remember what Mark Mylar's uh, recording setup was equipped for. I'm guessing it was an eight-track studio. Mm -hmm. And poor Ben Clatworthy, he was having trouble at first playing uh, the solo that he was going to have to do on Sure Looks That Way, and so finally um we we realized you know what let's finish doing all the other horn stuff and then we'll work with you later you'll take a little time away from it and then come back and try it again and we stayed there until it was dark out because (laughs) we ended up having to work with him he i think maybe either the the feel of the song or the fact that it was in seven he was just having a hard time finding a natural flow so that he could solo comfortably Hmm. and it took a little while, and then we finally got a good solo. But I felt bad for him because I felt like, I know it feels like we're ganging up on you saying, no, wait, we need to go back and do part of it again. And, but <laughs> it, he came through like a trooper.
1: The cover art, were you involved in the concept for the cover? Can you tell me what the idea was there?
2: Yep, basically I had no idea what to put on the cover. I had a day job at this point where I was working at a typesetting company, so I knew I could do all the typesetting Uh, and use creative fonts, typefaces, and I knew how I was going to play around with having bold for this or italics for that or um, heavily condensed type for part of it or regular wider type for other parts. But for the actual graphic art part, I didn't know what to do. And then I remembered that I had met a guy named Lee Kaplan who had put on uh, some local independent music concerts that were held in in bookstores or at the Century City Playhouse in the Santa Monica and Century City areas. And I knew that he dabbled in, and I'm, I don't mean that as an insult, he, he did some graphic art stuff. He, he had art things that he put together, in some cases, using existing photo or artwork that he would combine in kind of like a collage form. And I asked him if he would be willing to do the cover art? And he said, yeah, but what do I want? I said, I really don't know. And I said, Zoobs took some photographs of my hands holding my glass slide that I play slide guitar with and this stainless steel flat pick that I play with. And I was holding them between my fingertips or in my palms or holding my hands up with my, my almost like a fist or something. And I brought those pictures down and left them with him, and he ended up pulling out a whole bunch of graphic material that he had used in the past, and he found some stuff where it was originally part of a giant image that would be part of a really large sign for advertising. And it was, if you took a small piece of it, because it was designed to be viewed from a distance like a billboard, they had all these dots, different colored dots, And if you looked at it close up, you had no idea what the original image that was visible from a distance would be. It just looked like a whole random series of colored dots. And he put that down, and he somewhere found a picture of two – I think it was a a jet rocket or like a missile rocket launching that had two bursts of flame coming out of the the engines – And he turned that upside down and he said, hey, this kind of lines up with this picture of your hands. What about that? And I thought, well, I don't know. It seems like it's saying that my hands, I play like I'm, you know, my hands are on fire and I've got wonderful fiery licks. And I thought that's kind of praising myself too much. Let me think about it. And then I didn't want to push him and say, nah, can you come up with something else? Because the more he thought about it, the more he thought that was what we should use. And I thought, you know what? I'm paying him to do the art. And he's doing it for me for very little money and mostly as a favor. I shouldn't be giving him a hard time. I should go with it. And basically, after I decided it was okay, I no longer had any doubts about it. I thought it was fine. For the back cover, I think it was SST Records who arranged to have a really terrific professional photographer named Dennis Keeley do a, a photo shoot with me at a little studio of his. And he had this sheet of some sort of plastic material that was like multifaceted. I have no idea what it was originally used for. If you were just looking at it from across the room, it just looked like a kind of a milky white plastic sheet, but it had little facets to it. But for some reason, when you focused strong white light, like the kind of lights that a photographer uses to light his subjects, and then set the, uh, whatever it is, the aperture and, uh, and everything on the camera a certain way, you got this amazing kind of psychedelic rainbow of colors behind you if you were standing in front of it. And I had brought along as a little prop, somebody gave me some little, like, uh, little kids magic tricks because I decided I was going to call the album Slide of Hand as a play of words on sleight of hand, which right. is, what a lot of magic is. So I had brought along these little kids magic tricks that somebody gave me. I don't remember who it was. And one of them is a little trick where you put a little black ball inside of a red plastic cup. You put a plastic cap over it and say abracadabra. And then you lift that red plastic cap off and the black ball is gone. And it seems like magic. I just, because they're so small, I balanced the little red plastic cap with the ball in it on one finger and held the red plastic cap in my other hand. I have no idea if anybody looking at it would know what it was. It wouldn't be really, you know, conspicuous or glaringly obvious that it was part of a magic trick. But that was why that prop was in my hand, and that was how that colorful background got behind me. Dennis Keeley had shot a bunch of album covers for a lot of really big people. Bruce Hornsby in the range. I can't even remember all the other people and um, he was a really terrific guy. He's also a percussionist, and um, he was involved in the uh, the album My Life in the Bush of Ghosts oh, that wow. uh, Brian Eno and David Byrne of Talking Heads had recorded as a, a side project, which is really terrific, and hmm. came out back then. Cool. So that's how the artwork came about. I did the typesetting, and uh, Zubes had asked that he be credited as the Liquid Moamo because <laughs> that was a title that he had dreamt up for himself. I don't even know if he ever... Officially defined what a Malamo is or isn't, but that was his wish, that was his request. And we did manage to reconcile and get over our past disagreements by the time the album was going to come out. And I was lucky enough to have it mastered at K Disc by John Golden, who was highly respected for his mastering abilities. And it turned out we ended up needing his expertise. There was a technical problem with the recording. Uh, because of a wiring issue that Mark Mylar was probably not even aware of in his home studio, and John Golden was able to figure out a way that he could get around that.
1: Oh, Now, what about touring the record? Did you tour at all or uh, play any shows locally to support the album?
2: I wish I could say that I had played at least one, but the truth is, because I had never really made serious plans for a solo career, this was always something that I just viewed as the recording, you know, rehearsals for a recording pro- project. Then we would record the album and put it out and see what happens, which, of course is not a good way to promote a record. <laughs> you need to be able to go out and play live to have people become aware of you and get word of mouth. And of course, nowadays you would also sell merchandise like the actual recording. Right. But at the time, Mark Crawford uh, did not live close to hear. And he actually then later got married and moved much farther away, I believe in the Santa Barbara area. Willie Lappin still lived nearby, but we would have had to try to find a new drummer. And I also kept thinking, well, on most of the stuff, I'm playing rhythm and lead or melody parts on top. So there would have to be another guitar player. And geez, would I be able to find a keyboard player who could fake the, the, the horn parts or something? And I just, did not pursue it, which is definitely a failing on my part. It would have been great to have staged two or three concerts at least, just some local gigs, to be able to have people hear the material, hear what it sounded like live, maybe get a live reaction to it. But no, we never did. The only times that any of this material has been played live, sometime back, well, I guess it was 1992 or 93. Henry Kaiser got the opportunity to curate an evening that was going to feature slide guitar at the Frankfurt Jazz Festival in Germany, and he invited me to be one of the slide guitar players that was going to be part of this. And for it was several different artists, and for the part that I was in, Henry and I were both going to play guitar with a bass player, a drummer, and a keyboard player, and he said, well, we ought to rehearse a couple of your songs. So we worked up slide of hand and let's go places and eat things. And so that was one time that we got to, uh, to play them live. And that was very rewarding to hear it done live. And then we also at a gig, I'm trying to remember if it was maybe around the year 2000, I'm not positive. Henry had a gig that he had arranged up in the Bay area. And he said, why don't you come up and, and be part of this gig? It's going to be me and a bass player and a keyboard player and, and a drummer. And so I went up and we did it. And it was a bunch of, uh, some of it was cover material, some were some instrumentals that Henry had been playing with different people. And he would, you know, like whichever ensemble he was playing with, he would say, let's do, you know, these couple of songs. And again, we managed to play, I think we played Obligatory Blues and Slide of Hand at that gig. And as far as I know, other than those few occasions, I don't <laughs> think any of my solo material has ever been played live anywhere.
1: Now, you were recently on Henry Kaiser's weekly uh, solo show on his YouTube channel or on the uh, Cuneiform uh, YouTube channel. And he mentions on there that you haven't been playing for a while, that you've kind of put the guitar down for a while, but that you're working on new music. Can you bring us up to speed on, you know, maybe what you did after this record musically and what you're doing now?
2: After doing this record, um, I occasionally would be uh, playing on sessions, uh, recording projects of either Henry Kaiser or, for a little while, for ZOOG's Rift, and never really was pursuing enough stuff. I didn't have a big enough musical and social network of people to play music with. And I guess now it might be easier with the internet to be able to find like-minded people to play music with at the time. I just didn't have a lot of options. Uh, It did happen that there was a singer-songwriter named Andy Robinson who had been part of a band called Different World that I had gone to see, that I had enjoyed, and I had found out about them because they had a guy in the band that played bass and Chapman stick, which is a touch, um, I guess it's called a touch string instrument where you put both hands on the instrument and you tap the strings more like you're playing a keyboard uh, than playing uh, bass or guitar. And that guy had joined, after being in this other band, he joined Andy Robinson's band Different World. And I had gone to see them and gotten to be friends with Andy Robinson. And Andy Robinson said that another thing after that band fell apart, he had put together something that was kind of a little uh, trio thing uh, with a a woman singer and a multi-instrumentalist. And the multi-instrumentalist was no longer going to be available, but... He thought that it would still be fun to play music with this same woman vocalist who was quite good. Her name was Babs Parent, and he was wondering if I'd like to to join in. So I did, and uh, I brought along a bass-playing acquaintance from where I was working at the time, a guy named Tom Britt. And Tom Britt came in to play bass, and I played mostly dobro, which is an acoustic instrument, and we played out at some local coffee house places, uh, you know, coffee bars, where you're in the middle of playing an acoustic song and all of a sudden the cappuccino machine goes right. on in the background, <laughs> ah, deafening noise. It wasn't, it wasn't the greatest, the most conducive environment, but I was doing it for the reason I said earlier, I like being part of a musical ensemble. I like the, the repartee, the, the in-jokes and the uh, one person starts playing some song that everybody knows and you all fall in and maybe you decide to do it live, or maybe you just say, okay, that was fun, now let's get back to what we were rehearsing. And so I was enjoying that, but then that ended up falling apart. I can't remember exactly why, but I think after we recorded the one album that Andy Robinson recorded for the Andy Robinson band, um, he and his wife uh, were going to relocate to San Diego, so that was a little far to commute from the Los Angeles area, so that put the the end to that, and then... I just kind of got discouraged. Um, Part of the reason that I enjoyed playing music was, you know, hoping to meet women. And that hadn't really been working out all that well. And part of the reason was also enjoying the camaraderie of like-minded musicians. But I was having trouble finding people whose tastes lined up enough with mine that we had enough in common that it would work. And I just kind of got discouraged. And I stopped playing for a while. And then I decided... I'm just not that interested in picking up the guitar and playing by myself. And I didn't have a big social network of other musicians. So, roughly 10 years went by during which the only time I played was at uh, the funeral for uh, a friend of mine's mom had passed away. And uh, she wanted, her mom had wanted to have the old song made famous by Roy Rogers and Dale Evans Happy Trails to You. Mm-hmm. She, she wanted people to not be sad at uh, the memorial service for her. She wanted people to sing that. So, um, Willie Lappin and I, and uh, one other guitar player, we quickly worked up the chords and went and played that. And that was, other than that, I hadn't played guitar in 10 years. But the the upshot of all this is there's a Swedish guitar player who's uh, rock and blues influenced. His name is Jimmy Ogvin. And. Henry Kaiser and I are big fans of his, and we had gotten in touch with him, and we had been corresponding with him for probably a good 10 years or so. Henry found out that Jimmy Ogden's son was going to college in California, and Jimmy Ogden was going to come and visit his son. And Henry and Jimmy hatched the idea, well, why don't you come up and stay here with me, Henry, and I'll arrange a gig for us locally. I'll find us a, a bass player and a drummer. And then one of them said, hey, we should invite Scott. And they invited me, but they said, but there's a catch. You can't just come up to to meet Jimmy and hang out and see the show. You you can only come up if you're going to sit in with us on a couple of songs. <laughs> and I said, but I haven't played guitar in nearly 10 years. <laughs> and they said, well, you got about a month
1: yeah.
2: until Jimmy's going to be here. So I said, all right, I will. And so I sat down and quickly developed a set of very painful blisters on my soft fingers, because they had no calluses at all, trying frantically to uh, get into playing shape. And then I went up, and uh, Jimmy Ogden and I both stayed over with Henry Kaiser and his wife, and we played this local show, and there were some issues with sound and with uh, the the band not being as well rehearsed as we could have been, but overall, we just had such a great time that it re-energized me in thinking, you know, I really want to do this again, Mm-hmm. so i bought some new equipment i've got some new effect pedals i bought a brand new amplifier and i just recently bought a bass guitar and a second electric guitar so that i'll finally have a second jimmy ogren was kind of astonished to find out that i only had one electric guitar because he said how can you only have one guitar if you go to play a gig and you know and break a string or something you you, you can't just switch guitars you have, you have to go change the string and I should have gotten a second guitar a long time ago, but now I decided, what the heck? So, yep, I'm I'm back to trying to make music again. And in fact, in that YouTube uh, installment, that episode, which was uh, I'm trying to remember what what the the date of it was. It was in late August, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Henry put that one up. Uh, It was all things featuring he and I playing together. It has some of the uh, material from when we played at the Frankfurt Jazz Festival, uh, including Sleight of Hand and Let's Go Places and Eat Things from my solo album. And um, it also has a new thing that I had just recently worked up at home. It was a a piece that started because I had gotten this bass guitar and was trying to teach myself to play bass again, and I decided this time I don't want to be just a mediocre And you know, to poor bass player. I want to learn to play, you know, decent bass. I'm still mostly a slide guitar player, but I I want to have some fun playing bass and not be ashamed of it. So I came up with a bass line and wrote a song, which is really just an excuse for me to enjoy playing that bass line. And that became (laughs) a new instrumental called Walk It Off, which is in that installment of Henry Kaiser's weekly YouTube series.
1: Glad to hear you got bit by the bug again. Hopefully, you'll keep playing and maybe write some new songs as well. Maybe even another solo record.
2: It's possible. I definitely have some ideas. I've already laid down a couple of rough demos and I'm toying with some ideas for other things. There's also some, some, some loose discussion going on right now with uh, Henry Kaiser and that Swedish guitarist, Jimmy Ogden and I were, we were thinking about whether the three of us might try recording an album together because we all like each other so much and our playing complements each other, but each of us has a very distinctive style. So that may also happen. And Andy Robinson, who I mentioned earlier, um, once he saw that YouTube installment that Henry put up, he got very enthused and said, I've been waiting for years to hear that you're playing guitar again. You know, even yeah. though there's a pandemic going on, and so it's hard to get together. And There's now technology where you can collaborate with people from a distance. So mm-hmm. Maybe we can do something. So we're talking about uh, maybe doing some collaboration also. I definitely want to have fun playing music with people, and I don't want to restrict myself too much in what particular genre. Uh, I definitely have certain ideas for things I might want to do on my own that are original, but I'm also going to be open to playing with other people because it's fun to play music. As 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 a friend of mine pointed out, remember, when you, when you use the term playing music, the, the verb in there is play. So... <laughs> You should enjoy it. Yeah. So, yeah, going to try and do that.
1: Well, you know, I'm a guitar player myself, and I had kids and moved away and kind of similar to you, lost my a lot of my connection to my circle of friends that played music, put my guitar down for probably close to a decade, if not more, and, you know, I'm kind of waiting for that spark to come back.
2: <laughs> well, don't <laughs> but... wait too long. I mean, I was surprised that it started to come back quicker than I thought it would for me. And hopefully the same will be true for you. I don't know how long I would have waited if this opportunity to play with Henry and uh, Henry Kaiser and Jimmy Ogden had not come along and kicked me in the butt. And luckily for me, uh, my wife is not just supportive, but she had for the longest time been saying, why don't you ever play guitar anymore? You ought to play guitar. You should play guitar. So (laughs) she, rather than saying, you're buying a new amp and a new bass guitar and a new other guitar, her only comment was, it's absolutely fine. I think it's great that you buy them. The only catch is, you have to play them. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: so she's been really happy that I'm getting back into music, and that's that encouragement is also really helpful.
1: That's great to hear.
2: So I hope you do also. I hope you start playing again.
1: Yeah, well, you know, you probably had similar feelings to me. For the longest time, I felt guilty that I had this, you know, thing that I spent years developing and then just put away, and I would run into people, and they would say, so are you still playing? And then they would act disappointed when I said, no, I'm not.
2: Exactly, exactly the same thing I would yeah. go through.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I guess it took me a while to realize it's maybe just one of those things that I don't feel like doing right now, so I shouldn't feel guilty about it, but hopefully uh, hopefully, I will someday again.
2: I understand that completely. That was really what it was with me. I, just, I didn't think I would find it very enjoyable to play by myself again, and I, for some reason, could not get myself motivated to start looking for musicians to play with. And then luckily this opportunity to play with Henry and Jimmy came up and I enjoyed it so much that I decided, you know, we're only, we're only alive for a certain period of time, which in the span of existence is really short, relatively speaking. So maybe I should consider, you know, I always say to people that at heart, I'm still a musician. I still listen to music in the way that a musician does. I notice different parts to it as opposed to just saying it's catchy or has a nice beat. So, yeah, maybe I ought to pick it up again. So, well, hopefully the same will happen for you. But yeah, sometimes (laughs) it takes the moment being right.
1: For sure. Scott, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciated it.
2: You're welcome. I hope I answered uh, whatever questions you had regarding the solo album. And by the way, (laughs) thanks for, uh, for being interested enough to ask me about it. It was done so long ago now, uh, and it was done with financial limitations and with the, uh, the upheaval and, and tumult of my relationship with Zoogs at the time that, that left me with uh, some memories that were not as good as others. But I have to admit, whenever I go back and listen to the album, I'm not embarrassed by it. Usually I'm my own worst critic, but when I hear it, I think, yeah, I can live with that. That, that was a good representation of what I was capable of doing at the time. And I'm perfectly happy having people listen to it now if they're interested. So <laughs> any interest in it at whatever date is certainly welcome.
1: That's awesome. Thank you. Sure
2: thing. Thanks a lot. Nice talking to you, Brant.
0: Right on. Thanks, Scott, for being on the show, man. Like, that is a ton of detail that you just cannot find out anywhere else. And, and I have to say, like, when listening to that, Brant, Scott does a heck like he has a really good memory for that time frame and for the recording sessions and everyone who played on there. I know you kind of jog his memory a bit um, or at least prompt the discussion. But man, oh, man, like he's got total recall up to and including the uh, magic trick on the back cover
1: and everything like (laughs) the
0: dude. That's uh, that's pretty impressive.
1: I would say I knew that thing on the back cover was something I'd seen before, but I didn't know what it was. Oh, until yeah. He said it.
0: Yeah. It's like a kinder egg surprise for sure. That's yeah. all it is. Yeah. Did you uh, did you check out any live stuff of Scott online other than that Henry Kaiser? I found a set on eclectic electric that was a mind blower.
1: Yeah. Well, that Henry Kaiser, uh, the cuneiform thing, there's clips of that eclectic electric on there. Yeah,
0: the, the Kaiser French Colby and West track like whoa. Yeah. That's pretty
1: wild, man. And Scott holds it down too. I mean, it's fun to watch Scott play live like on YouTube or whatever to see what his fingers are doing and kind of get a get a handle on how unique his style is. I mean, I don't know enough about slide to really comment on uh how unique that style is, but I mean when you watch him play, you can kind of see what he's doing. Yeah.
0: He must have had a really, really strong pinky. That's all yeah. that came to my mind. I was like, "Whoa, that would be, that would be hard for me."
1: Well, when I think of slide guitar, I think of like, you know, like he mentions in the interview, the Stones or whatever, you know, or, you know, like the Allman Brothers or like Dwayne Allman or whatever, or you know, older blues artists. But um, you know, this album is, it will, you know, the style of the music is not what you would necessarily, I mean, there are some blues licks in here, but it's, it's kind of all over the place stylistically. Yeah, no, I agree.
0: A lot of it doesn't really sound like what you come to expect for slide
1: guitar too. Yeah, I guess that's what I mean, but I thought you'd be into it since you're kind of, you know, there's some Zappa connections and some Zappa sounding stuff on here too. For
0: sure. Oh yeah. There's, you know, when I said this last episode, I had never listened to this record and it was a very interesting listen for me. There's definitely some tracks on here that I was really, really digging and we'll talk about it in History Lesson Part Um, 2. So there's definitely some stuff on here like this is one of those ones that I've never listened to to before that I will listen to again and um, it's too bad that I hadn't heard it before. I actually truly did not even realize that fowler was on this record i mean i knew that drumbo was was on it but bruce fowler being
1: on here was a surprise yeah i mean me too i've never heard this record before uh and i will listen to it again i really enjoyed it but i'm surprised it it escaped you you're such a zappa freak and you you go so deep on the careers of like all the all the musicians that played in his band yeah
0: well there's only so much time in the day right
1: yeah and i mean we'll get to it when we go through the tracks, but Bruce Fowler is no bit player in Frank Zappa's career. Like,
0: oh no, 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 He was, he's way up there. And I mean, Scott in the interviews talking about Ruth and Ian Underwood, like these are super heavy era defining Zappa sidemen, right? Like these are yeah. huge, huge. And I mean, you know, John, like, like John French is no slouch either. Like when I was watching that Eclectic electric clip. I'm like, damn, that guy. No one drums like that. No one has, and and no one has since really. Like, he really, really makes a track sound. So few drummers, like, stick out like that. You know, you yeah. can almost tell who's drumming. Did did he
1: play with Zappa? No, but with Beefheart. Hey? Yeah, no, I knew with Beefheart, but. I wonder, have you heard his solo record? I'm pretty sure Scott plays on that, too. Oh, no, I haven't. Yeah. On the to-do list. Yeah. It's very cool.
0: Should I hit you with a couple of um, Spaceman spiels about this record? Please do. So, from the SST catalog, this is a quickie, and then we'll hit hit you with the No Age one. Um, The Colby reference in the SST catalog says the slide guitar is one of the most overlooked instruments in the pantheon of instrumental rock madness. Scott Colby is ready to remedy that joined by some of the most versatile and engaging musicians available. Scott more than rises to the task. And then there's a spiel on the back of that no age record. This one's a bit more of a tongue twister though, from the spaceman. It goes like this, The slide guitar is one of the most sensual instruments going. The languid drift of notes up and down the scale and the breathless tremolo that goes along with it makes slide guitar one of the easiest sounds to listen to. The only problem was that, as a style of playing, it had stalled out somewhere in the Mississippi Delta sometime in the 50s. Enter Scott Colby singularly dedicated to the mastery of all the possibilities of the slide guitar scott has indeed entered new words into the lexicon of its language after many years as a player on other people's records henry kaiser sugs rift scott has completed an album full of his lyrical slide playing and the song on no wage was let's go places and eat things that's a great great description of scott's playing and how he brought something new to the table
1: yeah well and kudos to sst for putting this record out yeah no doubt
0: um i did find something as well in the trouser press on this record it says slide guitarist scott colby was a frequent member of the rift entourage up through 1986 or so and his old trail boss returned the favor by producing Slide of Hand. This adventurous instrumental album sets Colby's bottleneck loose in a studio with such sidemen as Kaiser, John French, and Willie Lapin, also a rift vet. Since Colby doesn't come at slide guitar from a blues angle, his playing is fairly uncommon. The album is more or less jazz, played like rock. And there's no actual, like, Scott Colby entry in Trouser Press. It's all under the Zoogs Rift entry. Right.
1: All right, let's do these tracks. Yeah, man. History lesson, part two. Okay, Ryan, this came out on LP and cassette. It's never come out on CD. It is available digitally. It's on Spotify for sure and iTunes. And there's bonus tracks too, which I'll mention as we go along. Ryan, when I say the title, you say the witty comment from the back of the LP, okay? Because some some of those are really great. Yeah, yeah, I was hoping you would say that. (laughs) Okay. Okay, track one, side one, slide of hand. From the album of the same name. Okay, this is one of the first songs he demoed with Henry Kaiser, which he mentions in the interview uh, with those Lynn drums. The demo of this is on the digital version of the album. It's really cool and worth checking out for sure. Um, This is a very cool opener. Uh, He describes it both in our interview and on this blog post that I found uh, called gtroblq.blogspot.com. There's a great interview with him up on there. um, As being composed very quickly uh, when hanging out at Henry's place, at Henry's suggestion. Like... It sounds like Henry was just like, hey, you should write and record some demos. And they just did it on the spot.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: And if you watch that Cuneiform weekly solo, which we'll post, by the way, um, you can see footage of this song from the Frankfurt 92 Jazz Festival, which is really great. Yeah, what an
0: interesting little eclectic group of players that were all kind of in and out of each other's groups and... Supporting each other too, hey? Like Scott is super, you can tell Scott's really appreciative that he had the supporters that propped him up for this record, hey? Totally. Track two, Late. There's always room for cello,
1: Mark Mylar. Yeah. Uh, A reference to the fact that Scott plays digital keyboard cello on this one. This is more of a short interlude, it's one minute long, with just he and Willie, um, and Willie's playing an upright acoustic bass. And there's a demo version of this, also, on the digital release. Then we go to track three, The World Owes Me a Living. Kids, don't drive this at home. Willie Lapin. Yes, Willie, who also plays the downright electric bass on this one doing some slapping and popping. Mark uh, Crawford is credited with rhythm abuse. This is a great <laughs> funky track.
0: Yeah, this is a highlight for me too. The yeah. There's some killer roto-tom action, it sounds like, right at the outset. The drumming is awesome in particular on this track, and there's a mid-song uh, switch in terms of the rhythm and the groove that just is killer when it locks in. It's awesome.
1: Great track. Yeah, yeah. Track four, Metal Wood. Walk Softly
0: and Carry Acoustic.
1: Yeah. Scott on Bottleneck Dobro and Kalimba. This is one of the ones he recorded at home on his Porta Studio. Yeah, it almost sounds like there's some wah-wah
0: going on the Kalimba or, or the Dobro. Can't tell which one sometimes.
1: Yeah. Track five, Sure Looks That Way.
0: Odd Times Fly When You're Having Funk. And halving is spelt halving, as in in half.
1: (laughs) Okay, I missed that. This is a reference, obviously, to the time signature, and that it's a bit funky. We've got our first couple of guests, Jim German on tenor sax and Ben Clatworthy on alto sax. The horns sound great and fit the song perfectly. Love the stops and starts on this one. Scott's solo toward the end sounds like he's all the way up like almost to the top of the neck, right at the pickup. sounds really cool. This is also demoed on the digital version. Track six, Weight of the World, the last track on side one. I'd rather not talk about it. Yeah, so I think he says in the interview that he was having a romantic, some romantic troubles when he wrote this one. It's a really nice ballad. Scott's playing on this is outstanding. He said in an interview in Guitar Player Magazine, I try to sing through my instrument. I try to get a very emotive vocal quality from whatever I'm playing. And I think he achieves that with this song. This is a highlight for me. Yeah, it's a slow little
0: ditty, but it's true. It's the one where by the time I was at the end of side one, I went like, man, he could, you know, had he stuck with it, he could really be, you know, world-renowned slide guitarist type thing had he kept it up you know he could be up there with um with Kaiser and all the other guitarists we've had Glenn Phillips you know in terms of that world renown if he had kept with it for sure
1: yeah all right flip it over and we start with a song called Adrenaline who is excited question mark yeah so we start side two with a, a total ripper some of his licks are very fast like almost like he's playing with his fingers and not a slide. Yeah, there's some weird sounds on
0: this song and it almost reminded me of like like maybe there's field recordings or something. It sounds like a goat at some point and there's al- it almost sounds like nature sounds but I can't tell if it's like people's voices because it's obscured by the actual Instruments. It almost reminded me of when I saw Erto Moriera and a lot of his, um, bird sounding, uh, acoustic percussion instruments, like just way in the background there. I don't know if you like, were you able to pick up what that was? No, I don't know. I no. thought I heard a goat. Maybe I'm wrong.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, track two is obligatory blues
0: the law requires all slide players
1: to turn one in. Right. As in, they are obliged to play the blues. Uh, This is the all-star blues track on the album, and it's kind of the centerpiece of the album, really. Uh, On the Henry Kaiser weekly solo uh, that I keep mentioning, he and Henry mime this song, and Henry calls this one of his favorite solos he's ever played and it's a total ripper, his solo. Bruce Fowler takes a solo here also on trombone. As mentioned, he played with Frank Zappa for many years, starting with 1973's Overnight Sensation, and on some of his biggest albums of the 70s, including Apostrophe, Roxy and Elsewhere, Zoot Allures. He played on the Bongo Fury record with Captain Beefheart. He's played on Shiny Beast, Bat Chain Puller, and Dock at the Radar Station, the Beefheart records. Quite the coup to get him on on the record for sure.
0: Oh yeah, to have Fowler and French on is huge in in yeah. this
1: space. Uh, also, Toby Holmes plays on this, who we'll be seeing on some future Zoog's Rift records, and we see Blend Clatworthy and Jim German again, and Drumbo John French, uh, from Crazy Backwards Alphabet, Alphabet and Captain Beefheart, plays drums on this one. Track three, Staring Out the Window.
0: Four Dobros in Harmonic Convergence.
1: Yeah, so he tells a cool story about what that's referencing in the interview. Uh, We've got Solo Bottleneck Dobro. This one was also recorded on his Porta Studio, and it's also just over a minute long. Track four, A Good Talking To. Speaks for Itself. Yeah, that's a pun referring to the use of the guitar pedal Henry recommended when they were recording the demo, which, you know, they say makes your guitar sound like a voice. The pedal's called an envelope follower. Mm-hmm. You can hear it way more on the demo, uh, also included on the digital version. This one has kind of a cool reggae vibe. Yeah, also used to
0: good effect by Flea on the Uplift Mofo record the envelope follower
1: is yeah man okay track five let's go places and eat things walk softly
0: and carry a breadstick. the second walk softly pun yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes uh toby and jim are back on horns on this one this is a great jazzy song i love the little licks scott throws in uh Sounds like Willie's playing like a fretless bass, possibly, on this. Yeah. He may yeah. be he may be playing that upright again, I don't know.
0: Well, yeah. it's, it's not credited as downright electric bass, but it does sound fretless, you're right.
1: Again, there's great footage of them at the 92 Frankfurt Jazz Festival playing this one, and you can really see that unique Scott style that Scott has when you watch that video. And then uh, we end the track with, or end the album with the track, At Last. Literally. Yeah, this is the one that features Jesse Ed Davis on guitar. Another coup, for sure, getting him on the record. He played with Taj Mahal. Uh, He's got some great solo records. He played at the concert for Bangladesh, organized by John Harrison, or George Harrison, sorry. Uh, He's played on albums by John Lennon, Clapton, Leonard Cohen, Rod Stewart, Neil Diamond, and many, many more famous artists. He unfortunately died of a drug overdose shortly after this came out on June 22nd, 1988, at the age of 43. In fact, I was thinking, Ryan, this may be one of the last recordings he played on. Yeah,
0: possibly. It really
1: coincides with that time frame, for sure. Yeah. It's a nice ballad and a cool way to end the record. Uh, in, in addition to the tracks I've already mentioned, uh, there's a few more on the digital version. There's a demo of his instrumental cover of Mystery Train. Uh, all of those demos were recorded by Henry Kaiser in a single afternoon in November of 1984 at his home studio in Berkeley, California. There's a track... Uh, the studio track Mystery Train, recorded in 1991 from a various artist comp called Slide Crazy, uh, which is really great and has Willie Lapin on bass and uh, John French on drums. And there's also a track called Future Blues Jinx Blues. It's a medley. Uh, this is from the Henry Kaiser record Aloha from 1981, which came out on Henry's label Meta Language. It's a medley of Willie Brown's Future Blues and Sunhouse's The Jinx Blues. It features Scott on slide and also on bass, Henry on guitars, and John French on drums. So those are all really cool and worth checking out. I found a few reviews, Ryan. This is from the Ink Disease zine, which is more of a punk zine, so always cool to see how you know the punk community reacted to some of this stuff on SST. Here's what they said. Scott Colby is obviously a competent and creative musician who is capable of combining many genres of music, mainly country, delta blues, and cooter style jazz. There is a scary mainstream element to his sound. While I can envision playing this to my lefty deadhead friends at a Sunday barbecue, I can't help but feel that this is about as far from Black Flag as a nut burger is from a Big Mac. (laughs) (laughs) here's a a good a good review i found this is richard foss in all music this blast of slide guitar genius deserves to be heard by every rock and jazz guitarist on the planet twice scott colby plays with an extraordinary intelligence inventiveness and taste with material ranging from jazzy blues to frantic hard rock this is not a typical guitar hero album Colby gives his sidemen room to shine, especially agile bassist Willie Lappin, who gets almost as many brilliant lead lines as Colby on tracks like The World Owes Me a Living. He calls it marvelous and lyrical performances and says it sets the bar for all electric guitarists with this album. Yeah, it's pretty high praise for Scott. Yeah. The artwork, Ryan, I think, is covered pretty extensively in the interview. It's cool. I didn't even notice the slide in his hand until uh, he mentions it. Yeah, well... Because it, it's clear. It is
0: clear, yeah. And the it looks like an aluminium plectrum there in the other hand.
1: Yeah. I'm looking at the LP version, by the way, which you gifted me, Ryan. So thanks for that, because this is a great record. Yeah. On the back, we've got the great photo of Scott with the little magic trick thing. Um I love the ring that he's wearing. Which one? Or the rings. The big one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, there's one. It looks like a freaking Super Bowl ring or something there.
1: Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Who took this photo again? We He talks about him in the interview. I wanted to mention him. I'm looking Dennis for Dennis Keeley, the back photo. Yes. Go on his website, man. Holy shit. That guy has shot so many amazing album covers and famous artists. It's pretty yeah. crazy. Yeah. He shot like the biggest of the big for sure for artists. Lots
0: of the other stuff he's, uh, it says on the back here, Scott mentions during the interview about how metal wood was not really a composition. It was improvised also about how, uh, Bruce Fowler was consulted for the horn arrangements. Yep, The SST folks also Ruth Underwood. Gets a mention as well, too, for the hookup in terms of yep. uh, getting getting uh, Bruce involved. Great stuff here.
1: You And then it ends the liner notes by saying, you've heard it before, you'll hear it again. Play this album loud. It's a good-sounding record, too. Mark Myler did a great job on this. The horns, considering they were recorded, I think he says, with one mic, sound awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a great sounding record. Scott kind of talks about the budget limitations or whatever, but if this was recorded for, I think he says 1500 bucks from SST plus 700 of his own, like it sounds amazing.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't sound dated like a lot of records from this time frame would with things like Lin Drums or Gated Reverb, which definitely could find their way onto a record like this. This yeah. one's still... It does not sound dated due to its production. It sounds, you know, pretty current and sonically very good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a great record. Uh, There's no Dead Wax, Ryan. I already checked. Dang it. Yeah.
0: I bet you it would have been another um, walk softly and carry a blank (laughs) Dead Wax. That would have been
1: good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad there's no dead wax. It's you know, the best ones are puns, so and this record's full of them. So, yeah, used it up on
0: all Well, there's like a dead wax for each of the tracks though on the back.
1: It's true. Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. What were your picks? I I
0: would actually go either with Slide of Hand or the world owes me a living, but probably the world owes me a living. Cause I think that that's like a pretty, like a really, a really good track. Like it's my favorite track and it's, it doesn't have John French or Bruce Fowler on it. Like I like obligatory blues. Don't get me wrong. But my favorite track is probably the world owes me a living.
1: Yeah. My faves were the world owes me a living weight of the world and let's go places and eat things. But the whole record is, is great. Let's do The World owes Me a Living. Right on. Yeah. Hey, thanks to Scott for being on the show. Thanks to Henry Kaiser for connecting us. Uh, Go check out Scott's new material on the Henry Kaiser weekly solo episode. He has a new song called Walk It Off, and there's a solo by Henry on it, and it's really great. Ryan, what's next week?
0: Next week, Brant, we're going back to Dinosaur Junior Land with the, well, I guess it's the self-titled Dinosaur Junior EP, SST152, the, and I guess it's otherwise known as the Little Furry Things EP. And we've got a special guest.
1: Yeah, we've got Maura Jasper on the show. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content.